feels to me that we are really in the the heart of the retreat. And, uh, I feel I wanted to offer an encouragement to continue to find your own your own way with it all, and your own um, your own autonomy, you might say. Um, I teach in a number of different formats, and there's something particular about this way of teaching, with the two of us at the front, looking one way, and all of you looking the other way. (laughs) There are many lovely advantages of this way of teaching, and, and I love it. And at the same time, one of the things... Uh, perhaps we may say a shadow side of this particular format is that it may not always encourage that sense of autonomy you may be looking to Zohar and me to give you the answers (laughs) and we'll do our best (laughs) but perhaps not so much answers and and Zohar with uh, putting a question mark around this word instructions too there may be suggestions, pointers, but this sense of your own uh, autonomy, I think, is really significant on a retreat and in life generally, and perhaps particularly here when we get to the heart of the retreat, because you are likely to be in very different places on this third full day of the retreat, and therefore uh, wisely will need quite different things. So, in some senses, it's really checking in with yourself and asking yourself this question, you know, what would really serve me? uh, On these days of retreat. And that could be all kinds of things. So sometimes, for some people, it may be that you feel at the end of the sitting uh, practice, you'd like to sit a little longer. You may feel there's more energy there to settle in. So please feel free to do that. There's something around, remember the stretch that we do when you're stretching up and reaching to the ceiling and really stretching, stretching, stretching and then easing off, stretching a little more. This is a kind of metaphor for the retreat. And I'd encourage you, in a sense, to have your own volume control on that. If you like, sometimes it feels useful to turn up the volume. You might say something like, you know, turn up the intensity a little bit. Sometimes, for some of us, that's useful. You know, sit for a little longer. To be really disciplined around coming straight from here, going to the walking, walking for the whole period, coming back. So that's one way it can go. And also I think for many, many, many of us it can be really helpful to to soften. It can be such a a habit of feeling we need to knock ourselves into shape. (laughs) And so then that turns up on retreat. Okay, got to do better. Third day. Uh, and it may feel useful to to soften a little. 
And so this is then calls for a lot of wisdom to sense what feels useful, what feels helpful. There's a, a beautiful question that we ask on the eight-week mindfulness courses, which I love, which is, how can I best take care of myself? How can I best take care of myself? And the more I contemplated that question, it's not, it's not easy to answer, actually. <laughs> it's a question that I live with more and more and more. And uh, again, it was just offering suggestions in many ways this morning, but one thing that can be very useful on retreat, a very helpful way of taking care of yourself, might be at times to, to walk outside of the grounds. So if you haven't uh, done that yet, or that's not part of your uh, schedule, you might just consider whether that would be useful, to do something that feels a little more active. And again, this is all about a wise response. In life in general, for instance, if we have periods where we feel somewhat low, the energy is low, it's not necessarily very useful to walk very slowly because we may find ourselves doing that anyway. <laughs> uh, so it might be more useful to actually you know, walk quite quickly. I mentioned yesterday there's this hill you know, to the right there. You can walk up that heart gets going a little. How can I best take care of myself? And this is not uh, in any sense a selfish question because we may well be aware that our capacity to care for others is intimately connected to our capacity to take care of ourselves. As Oha was talking yesterday about ways of seeing, another way of seeing your whole time on retreat is an act of generosity to others. People don't always see it like that. It's like, oh, going off on retreat, that's a bit self-indulgent. should be helping others. But I know very strongly, deeply in my own experience, that my capacity to be helpful to others is intimately linked to how nourished I feel. How replenished I feel. So taking care, taking care. One of the qualities we mentioned on the description for this retreat is the quality of joy. Quality of joy. And so, again at times today, if you wish, you may let that focus come to the foreground of attention. That could become a particular way of seeing, a way of looking. To notice what's lovely, to notice what's beautiful, and to notice what's enough. Sometimes in these teachings we talk a lot about craving. I think one of the central things that undermines craving is the sense that there's enough. 
You know, that craving is a story of lack, isn't it? I haven't got enough, so I need. And then project it into all kinds of things. So the sense of sufficiency, the sense there's enough, is uh, very nourishing. And again, it's a lovely question to have in the background throughout the day. What's, what's lovely, what's beautiful here? And when we start to ask that question, there's, there's a lot. <laughs> just wandering around the Gaia House garden, you know, it's this sort of cornucopia of delights. You know, to have time to really take in the beauty of the sky, these ancient trees, feeling of the grass under the feet, many people have mentioned. And these lovely people around us. Yeah, lovely people around us. You know, what a joy it is to have time to be able to do these practices. To be in a fortunate situation of life that we're here. It's interesting perspective perhaps, but from my perspective at least, you've made a very wise choice <laughs> by coming here at all. I mean, you could have done all kinds of things in many environments that just aren't, don't have this level of nourishment. I'm, I'm deeply grateful, for instance, for the meals. You know, 7.30, breakfast turns up, don't need to think about that. 12.30, lunch. 5.30, tea. And to be free from having to, sometimes in my own life, I, you know, can feel a bit of a struggle. What shall I have? The different choices. And here, in a sense, to be f free from having to make a particular effort, for instance, to eat healthy, nourishing food. It's just here. <sighs> Turns up again. There's this experience of beauty which in many ways is also an experience of non-grasping. It's an interesting contrast to contemplate sometimes, the difference between something being beautiful and something that stimulates a kind of craving to possess it. And nature, I think, very often opens this sense of beauty. If you appreciate the, as I said, some of the trees in the garden, there's a sense of the heart opening for that. And probably for most of us, there isn't the immediate feeling of, right, I want to dig that up and take that home and have it. You know, it doesn't necessarily trigger that possessiveness. I mean, it you know, might trigger thoughts of getting some nice trees for our garden. But it, there's something different there. It's like, ah, oh, you know. I live in, in Nottingham, there's a beautiful park in Nottingham called Woolerton Park. I sometimes have this thought, how rich would I need to be to have a garden as good as Woolerton Park? And what the answer is really. A lot of money. <laughs> and then I think, I don't need to own it. <laughs> it's here. 
It's amazing sometimes that fear and how that can free us. There's so many messages that tell us, you know, oh, if I had 10 million pounds then. But I've got Woolerton Park and all the people in Nottingham, and you guys are welcome too. It's not. <laughs> you don't check where you're from. But it's interesting, isn't it? That feeling of, ah, oh, what's around us that's, that's beautiful. Sometimes, again, we may notice patterns on retreat where it all begins to feel very serious. And there's a lot of kind of focus in on my stuff. You know, I'm working on working on my particular patterns and am I getting anywhere and it's the third day now. And oh, Come on. You know, sort of personal psychological operation almost in my, in my film. <laughs> And there really is a place on retreat for touching what is touching places of grief, touching places of sorrow, places of vulnerability and sensitivity we haven't felt. And actually there's a beauty in that too. There's a beauty in that too. But also noticing that that sense when that seriousness can become more of a sort of constraint. An opening, okay, I'm in this place. Sometimes for me in in practice, very specifically, opening the eyes can be a way to do that. Sometimes when my eyes are closed in meditation, if there's a particularly strong pattern around, it can feel like that's my whole reality, engulfed in this story, this drama, a sense of, Perhaps what's wrong with me, what's wrong with the world, so strong, buzzing around. And then open the eyes. I'm here. <laughs> I'm in Gaia House. Oh. I mean, if you have those moments, it's like you've completely forgotten. <laughs> you're not in Gaia House at all, you're in drama land. And so then that's, that's a skillful response, you're noticing that, and then you can close your eyes again. Begin to engage with that in a different way, perhaps, have some more perspective around it. I think in our practice there's very often a real dance between that move towards what's nourishing, what's beautiful, what's lovely, what makes us feel resourced, and from that place then turning towards the areas that feel more difficult, more challenging, more vulnerable. But knowing again that's a dance, yeah, we can move between those poles. There are often said to be two aspects to meditation practice. The aspect of calming, gathering and collecting, and the aspect of insight and clear seeing. And the way we've been teaching on retreat, I think, on this retreat is very much that these are two aspects rather than completely different 
practices in the sense they're too um, two sort of modes of meditation if you like yeah so the meditation practice on the one hand is allowing us to be more calm and more gathered and more still by simply coming back to the breathing to allow things to settle but the development of calm in this tradition in particular is never a an end in itself because those states of calm are impermanent and this is why sometimes leaving retreat can be challenging difficult because we may feel by the end of the retreat we're more calm and still and then we go back into our lives and things stir it up again and we think oh what happened to that calm and so if the only purpose of meditation is understood to be like that creating states of calm there can be a kind of agitation around that because we can't hold on to that it's conditioned when you have less stimulation turned off the news and the internet and the so many conversations we can be silent this is why in many ways why we have these conditions it's conducive to the mind calming settling steadying and so rather than being an end in itself that's then a very helpful way to begin to see more clearly to begin to see more clearly into well into the nature of things we could say into the nature of things certainly into the nature of our hearts and minds in particular perhaps the question of struggle and the end of struggle you know, what are the conditions, what's happening when that sense of things feel difficult, I feel bound down, struggling, constricted, tense, tight. And what are the conditions where that eases, where that softens, where that's released? This is a, the liberating question that really can inform our practice. And so again, at this stage of the retreat, perhaps giving even more emphasis to this element of seeing clearly, of understanding, of looking deeply into our experience. And one of the ways we can do that at times is to allow the awareness to be more open and to be more broad. So our practice can include more and more aspects of our experience. The breath, the sensations in the body, the changing sounds and the changing thought. So the whole flux and flow of experience, the different elements that come and go. Can begin to be something that we can see more and more clearly. And there are many ways, so I was talking yesterday about lenses and ways of seeing, and there are many, many lenses we can use to contemplate our experience, but just to mention one, just to mention one, which is this lens of, of impermanence, of change. 
And when you notice, pay attention to these different aspects of experience, the breath comes and goes. The sensations in the body come and go. The thoughts flicker. like kind of little fireworks. Their ephemeral nature can begin to really stand out. As we begin to be more aware of this aspect of impermanence, also we can see that this is the nature of, of life, this flux and flow. So we're perhaps focusing on particular elements of our experience, but it's a really universal characteristic. That's impermanence, that's change. And you can contemplate it on so many different levels. You know, it applies to our own personal history, it applies to civilizations, it applies to the planet, it applies to the solar system, it applies to political systems, whatever you can think of. And some things change very quickly, some things change more slowly. But they have this characteristic of being born, being around, being in flux, passing away. And sometimes when we hear about impermanence, we may have the idea this is a really grim piece of news. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, he's talking about impermanence. <laughs> Started off talking about joy, I was feeling a bit better in there. <laughs> yeah, he's really, he's really done it. Oh. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> but it's really helpful to think, actually, impermanence is not, certainly need not be a grim teaching at all. You might think, I've got to grip my teeth and come to terms with the fact that everything changes. Oh. That's going to be hard work. So, a couple of suggestions around that. One is, if you imagine things, that things were not impermanent, in other words, if you think impermanence is bad news, that implies permanence would be good news. And if you try and imagine a permanent world, you actually can't do it, or at least I can't do it, uh, so something that was permanent would be completely static. Another word for that would be dead, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, and I know literally it's not impermanent, but an image for me is plastic. Plastic is more permanent, if you like. A plastic flower is more permanent, relatively speaking, than a real flower. But we tend to prefer the real flowers, yeah. There's something permanent, static. That there's something deeply beautiful about the coming and going of things. And impermanence means spring and summer as much as it means autumn and winter. It means birth and maturity and growth and development and as much as it means death and loss and decay. And so there's something in our practice about really holding those together. 
And there is a deeply poignant aspect of impermanence, the sense of our own losses. And so there's not to deny that. But also the beauty of a shifting, moving, changing, dynamic, alive world. The end of one thing is always the beginning of something else. Right? <laughs> so the view that impermanence is just bad news is a rather limited perspective. And in these practices we contemplate impermanence not to bring us down, but to liberate the, we might call the practice of uh, the liberation of non-clinging, of non-clinging. So impermanence, there's no particular suffering in permanence as a fact. The suffering is in the clinging. The clinging is what denies the impermanence. Shouldn't be like that, shouldn't change, needs to say the same got to be like it was. So we notice this habit of clinging, fixing, holding and doesn't allow things to shift and move and change. I mentioned uh, that I used to work in a college and I had a, a lovely time. I joined there I think in 2002. It was wonderful. By about 2012, 2013, I used to struggle a lot because it wasn't how it was in 2002. <laughs> and I teach this stuff. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's something that we contemplate again and again and again and again. And just seeing again these, these contemplations can be in the background today as you notice sound the intention to tune in to how they come and go. As you notice the breath, sensing how it moves, in breath and out breath. Sensations in the body, shifting, moving. Just the sense of tuning into that aspect of experience. There are many suggestions for you today to take care of yourself. How can I best take care of myself? To be open to what's joyful, what's beautiful, what's lovely, what's enough. And to be open to the flux of life. The shifting, moving, changing, dynamic quality of things. So, again, settling into your posture, finding a, a posture that's supportive.
and allowing the attention once again to really come into the body moving all of the way down down into the legs and into the feet and feeling the ground taking time to really sense and feel the connection with the ground What does it feel like now, right now, in this moment, to sense the ground, bringing a, a curiosity <coughs> to that experience? sense of contact Taking time to feel and to sense the seat, feeling the contact with the, the cushion, the chair, and taking your seat, taking your seat, arriving.
noticing how things are as we begin the, the practice, noticing the kind of mood, kind of thoughts that are present. particular visitors that are here in terms of thoughts remembering that these two change already on this retreat moments of real struggle moments of ease so whatever's here now remembering this too will pass shift Letting it be, letting it be. to come down into the belly feeling sensing the rhythm of the breathing feeling the breath the breath be a place to come home to
now noticing if any particular sensations in the body call the attention draw the attention and spending some time with those sensations turning towards them allowing the attention to really meet the bodily sensations that begin to stand out beginning to explore these sensations do they stay the same, do they move Breathing with the sensations in the body. bringing the sense of curiosity to the sensation what do they feel like? how do they move? <coughs> perhaps sensing the relationship to them Holding on, pushing away. Using the breath to explore the sensation. To meet the sensation.
now allowing the attention to be wider and broader and beginning to include the the sounds that come and go an open awareness within which the sounds arise and pass, come and go, making space to simply receive the changing sound. Just exploring the sense of this more open awareness, receptive, we can meet the the changing sound. Just allowing them to come and go within the space of awareness. Arising, passing, coming, going. Just aware.
benefits of the practice. Letting go of any effort even the effort to be with the breath to notice the sounds really letting go of sense of effort just a sense of awareness sounds coming and going thoughts coming and going sensations in the body coming and going and in the midst of this changing flow of experience allowing the attention just to rest and be still in the midst of this changing flow of experience allowing the attention to rest and be still
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.